the Lord. Just kidding. It's good to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord and have this time together as we gather around the Word of God. I want to begin by giving a few announcements. It's always a delight to welcome a new members of the family. And this morning, I'm pleased to announce on behalf of Nathan Tyler and Catherine Bamford that their little boy, Theodore Clyde Bamford, was born at 7.04 this morning. And I'm looking over here, and I see some really, really proud grandparents and some proud great-grandparents, so make sure you pass by and congratulate them before they leave the service today. Second thing I want to bring up is Second thing I want to bring to your attention is, yes, we have decorated for the Christmas season, but no, we're not beginning the Advent season today. It's one of those unusual years where Christmas and Christmas Eve and the last Sunday before Christmas happen so closely together, that historically and traditionally, Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas Day. And so the last Sunday is actually the 24th. And so we will begin Advent next week and have it on the 3rd, the 10th, the 17th, and the 24th, and we'll have scripture readings and we'll have candle lighting, special hymns to remind us of the joy of the light coming into the world. But, you know, this gives us an extra week to enjoy the beautiful decorations and to remind ourselves that the light has come down into the darkness and that we have Jesus as the hope of the world. So in this time of anticipation, Advent, which means coming, we have an extra week to rejoice in the meaning of the season and why we gather as we do. A third thing is I want you to turn to your bulletin and I want you to pull out an insert that looks something like this. In fact, it's going to look just like this. We've decided we're going to do something a little, little special this year. We have received notice from two ministries in town, the Rescue Mission and the Hope Center, that they're a little low in supplies. And so we want to do an in-gathering for them this year to be a blessing as they want to be a blessing to the community at Christmas. And so over the next couple of weeks, as you go out shopping, if you have this list, just add a couple of items in your cart and hang on to them, put them in a special bag at home. Because what we'd like to do is on December 10th, December 10th, is I want you to bring all of that to the worship service. And we're going to have a time of in-gathering. We're going to have collection boxes up in the front in order to do something a little different. I've seen this done in other churches, but a lot of churches throughout the world celebrate a type of in-gathering or first harvest where they actually physically bring forward the crops from the fields. Well, we're not going to bring any crops from the fields, but we're going to symbolically bring forward part of the bounty that God has given us. And as a church community, we're going to celebrate his bounty to us and then collect all that we're bringing to bring over to the Rescue Mission and the Hope Center to use during the Christmas season. Okay, so over the next couple of weeks, you got your shopping list here, and on the 10th, and we'll be reminding you between now and then, to bring them on the 10th, and we'll have an in-gathering on that day uh, to celebrate God's goodness to us, and in turn be a blessing to our community during the Christmas season. And the last thing, uh, just make sure your cell phones are turned off as we enter a time in the Word of God. We don't want to have any distractions as we, as we do so. Well, during his courtship with a young woman named Julia Dent, Ulysses S. Grant, who would go on to become a U.S. Army leader and president of the United States, once took Julia out on a buggy ride. And they were coming to a flooded creek that was spanned by a flimsy bridge. 
and Grant assured Julia that it was safe. And he said, do not be frightened. I'll look after you. Well, replied Julia, then I shall cling to you whatever happens. And true to her word, she clung to Grant's arm as they drove safely across the flooded creek. And a few minutes later, as Grant was reflecting on the situation, he cleared his throat and he said, Julia, you said back there that you would cling to me whatever happened. Would you like to cling to me for the rest of our lives? With that, she said yes, and they were married in 1848. Now, in the mind of God, we began to look at the, the God's view of marriage last week. And in the mind of God, marriage is a covenant commitment and devotion of a man and a woman who agree to ride together through life in the same buggy. And whatever challenges may come, they'll hang on to each other in affection and steadfastness and endurance. That is the goal. That is the ideal of marriage. And yet, as we see, sin threatens that ideal in so many levels. And so it was last week as we began our study in Matthew 19 when we saw that some Pharisees came to Jesus and they want to test him. Well, when is divorce allowed? They wanted to know what Jesus would say about what Moses had taught in Deuteronomy 24 about for what reason can a man divorce his wife? And they'd have a discussion over the meaning of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And one key word there, which is translated as indecency in our English Bibles. And before answering their question, you recall, Jesus goes back to the beginning. And he says that God's plan for marriage was for one man to be with one woman for one lifetime. For the celebration of marriage reflects God's love for his people. It's to be a holy union, a committed union, a faithful union an unbreakable union. For as we saw last week and as we remind ourselves, in the mind of God, marriage is permanent for this life. And it's one of the ways that the plan of God is fulfilled in this world. For we know that marriage is only for this world to accomplish the plans of God here. And we saw there was only one reason that was allowed for divorce, namely infidelity. The Greek word porneia, which means any sexual activity that threatens the marital union of a man and his wife. And so we're to work hard to strive for the holiness, the sanctity, the joy, the purity of marriage. So as Jesus is retelling the beautiful story of God's design for marriage, he affirms that God's ways work best. And when we walk with God, when we work with God, we experience his blessings and his pleasure and his peace. But if we go against that plan, there is always pain and difficulty and challenge and strife. While we live in an age where this plan for marriage has been tarnished, where divorce is far too common, both inside and outside of the church. And therefore, we as a church, we, we, we run on two tracks, as it were. On the one side, we offer grace and mercy and hope to those who have been hurt through divorce. Sin brings pain. Its results are painful. But we point everyone to a merciful Savior. The church is to be a hospital for the wounded, but where one through faith and repentance we can be restored and experience all that there is available for us in Christ. But on the other track, we always strive for God's ideal. We always strive for what is good. We strive for what is holy, for what is perfect. And so we need to celebrate that plan. We need to teach that plan. We need to proclaim that plan. And that we need to live out that plan at every turn. 
so that as we move forward, we have fewer and fewer people who are hurt by the sin of divorce and more and more people who experience the blessing that comes from being in God's plan. We need to remember if we keep on doing what we have been doing, we will keep on getting what we have been getting. And I think we all agree that we don't want to keep on getting what we've been getting. So we need to change what we have been doing. We saw that as Jesus tells the story, he uses specific gender terms with specific gender meanings, man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother, that marriage is good for all who are involved, the women, the men, the children, the society, the church, the country, marriage is indeed a good idea. And therefore, divorce should only be seen as a last resort, for in the power of God, there is always the possibility of reconciliation and hope and restoration, and we need to work accordingly. So Jesus leaves some hard teachings here. And one of the things that we do, because we are surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and to the power of His Word, is we just teach what He teaches, and we trust Him to apply it to our lives. But we need to recognize that for some, remarriage may not be an automatic option. If we uphold the sanctity of marriage, we need to uphold it all the way to the end. And it flies in the face of our culture with its no-fault divorce, with its divorce for irreconcilable differences, where we claim to have an autonomous free will to decide whatever we want to do. Well, I have the right to do this, we claim. And Jesus is challenging that right, and he's challenging that claim. And even the disciples of his day, the Jewish men of his day, with their normal Jewish understanding, struggle with what Jesus is saying. They thought that a Jewish man had a right to divorce his wife for any reason, just to give her a certificate of divorce, which we saw was this measure of protection for women in the ancient world. Jesus says, no, not so fast. It was not that way in the beginning. It was only allowed for hardness of heart. Jesus knows how compromise begins. There is sin. So to try to cover that sin, we make arrangements to make the sin more acceptable. And then conditions are put in place to manage that sin. And then new, new conditions arise because of those conditions. So we put in new types of decisions and new type of justifications to cover up those decisions. And Jesus cuts through all of that and says, let me remind you again of what God's plan is and how good and beautiful it is. And so all that is an introduction to what we saw last week as we hear our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us in very direct terms. He's going to continue with that idea and move on to a couple of other thoughts this morning as we continue in our series in the Gospel according to Matthew and as we continue in Matthew 19. Which brings us today to chapter 19, verses 10 to 15. And may the Lord give us ears to hear and have hearts that are quickened as we hear his word read, and as we hear it taught this morning, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. And his holy word says to us, the disciples said to him, to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. 
But Jesus said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Here we have the word of the Lord given to us to instruct us on the Lord's intentions for marriage, for singleness, for the family, for children. Let us receive it for its intended purposes. Please be seated. And let's pray. Father, we have just sung that you're a good and gracious king, and if ever we needed that truth, it's now because we're before your holy word. And we thank you that as a good and gracious king, you can teach us what you have put in that word. So, Father, we pray that you would banish the distractions that are in our hearts and minds and cause us to turn to you, that your spirit would be teaching us what has been placed in this word, the spirit who is the author of this word, and may we, your people, be attentive to it and hear it and have minds to understand and hearts to receive. And so, Father, teach us now in these moments as only you can, for it's for your glory and for the glory of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Special greeting to those of you joining us online this morning. It's good to have you here. Thank you for being with us. We're so glad that we have this opportunity to worship the Lord with you through this medium, YouTube and Facebook. We pray that they'd be used for God's glory in your life this morning. And so we encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we begin our study this morning. But on behalf of all of us here, we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our first major point, as you turn to your sermon outline this morning, is of marriage and singleness. Of marriage and singleness. As Jesus moves from the issue of divorce and remarriage, he's going to address two other issues that are important concerning the family, community life, concerning the church, and that of singleness and children. He knows he needs to give a full theology of God's view of the family. So he needs to deal with the difficult matters that we will face in this world, full of sin as it is, because we must continue to remind ourselves of God's ideal, remind ourselves of God's provision, remind ourselves of God's promise, and turn to the Lord of all and say, help us as your people to live in a way that's honoring to you. And so we take a look at what this Lord of life says as we get to our next point, which is a great misunderstanding, a great misunderstanding, and our, our text begins. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. This would have been a surprise to the disciples, what Jesus has been teaching. It would have been a surprise to the Pharisees. What I find is interesting, it's the Pharisees who have come to him to put him to the test. But who are the ones that respond to what Jesus has taught? The disciples. They also are listening in. They also are curious. They're trying to put all these things together. This runs against the grain of what they have been taught about marriage where they believe the Jewish man had a right to divorce his wife, just give her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus is saying it was not that way in the beginning. And so as they hear about problems that can be in marriage, they, they start to have some struggles. If marriage is to be permanent, Jesus certainly seems to say it is. And if that marriage comes with difficulties and with challenges, with no seeming escape plan, then perhaps it's better not to get married at all. This is their, their reasoning. It's better to be single and not get married than to get married and run into problems. Now, I think they're being cynical at one level. I think they're also trying to understand what is this new teaching, as it were, that Jesus is bringing, which is not actually a new teaching. It's a return to the original teaching. 
And as he's cutting across decades of reinterpretation and adding on through their traditions of men, they're struggling to understand what is it that Jesus is saying. They recognize that this is a hard position that Jesus is taking. And I think they're asking him to reconsider his position on divorce. Jesus, be a little bit more reasonable. I mean, marriage is God's idea. We recognize that. But there needs to be an escape plan. If there isn't, then, then why get married at all? And yet not to get married goes against the plan of God. We can't live in sexual sin, for that would cause our condemnation. So, Jesus, reconsider. You've given us a tough position. But Jesus won't take the bait. He's not going to reconsider his position. He's challenging them to reconsider theirs. As they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to be married. Perhaps singleness is an option. And Jesus says, singleness is an option for some. But he said to them in verse 11, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So Jesus turns their question around, contrary to their accepted narrative. And he says that for some people, being single is a real possibility. It is even the will of God for them. And if it's the will of God, then it is something that should be celebrated and recognized, and it should be accepted, because celibacy then is not to be seen as a life sentence or a curse, or as some type of punishment from God. And so Jesus seems to be subtly changing now the, the subject from that of marriage and divorce to celibacy, and then he's going to move on to how do we deal with children. And he makes at least an implication that those who have been divorced for reasons that were unbiblical need to reconsider the option that perhaps a remarriage is not for them. Perhaps they should stick it out in their current marriage, work through the problems and difficulties, and work to move towards the ideal of God. Now, Jesus knows that not everyone is going to accept this teaching. He's making a strong plea to celibacy, to the single life, to the fact that God has a right to tell us how we are to control our sexual passions. But for the Jews of his day, this was unthinkable. It was unthinkable that a man, first of all, could not divorce his wife, but even beyond that, that a Jewish man would not get married. That was just simply the way it was done, where most marriages were arranged. And so as you would have children, you'd raise them up, and already the families are starting to figure out who they're going to pair with whom. And most marriages were arranged. So the idea that someone would actually be single and have a celibate life was, was unthinkable. Perhaps it's unthinkable in our day, at least when we carry it out to its logical conclusion. A lot of people today ask the question, is it even possible that we could learn and should be required to tame and control our sexual urges? But I think God is clearly telling us this morning that though he has created us with those desires, he also provides the way for them to be satisfied in a way that is honoring to him. But in our day, we ask the question, is celibacy even possible? Is it even desirable? Can we possibly live without expressing ourselves in the most intimate of ways? But to ask that question needs to be asked in the right order. God is the one who created us. He created us as male and female. He created us as sexual beings, but he also is the one that set the guidelines for how those gifts can be used. And we need to understand in our anthropology, our study of what it is to be human, there is more to our humanity than simply sexual expression or sexual satisfaction. After all, 
We're going to be in heaven forever in the presence of God, enjoying the fullness of our humanity and the fullness of his deity, and there will not be sexual expression. So that means it must be part and possible even here as we are growing in the Lord. We were created for relationships, for human interaction. We were created to live in community. And that's not going to look the same for all people at all times. But God is not a killjoy. God is not a heavenly tyrant who simply just enjoys snuffing out any desire we may want to have pleasure. He knows what is good for us. He knows how to provide the ways for us to have real and deep human connection without violating his holy and divine principles. He knows that he can provide the way through his strength for us to channel our deep desires in ways where they can be met, but in ways that are honoring to him. And we need to affirm then, we need to start with the goodness of God that when he created us as we are, he created something that was good, and he who created us knows what is best for us. And so we affirm then that the Father knows best. But in this tough teaching that Jesus is going to give, he's going to list, I think, at least four reasons why people are single. Now, I grant you from the beginning, there are probably many more reasons that we could come up with today. But they're just the reasons that are given here in the text. And the first one is, he says, not everyone can receive this except the ones who have been given, but some people will be single by fear. That's listed right in the text. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Some remain single because of a fear of commitment, because of a fear of joining their life one to another. It's understandable in the days in which we live with divorce rates so high, with infidelity, such a rampant disease in our culture, children that have gone through the pain of divorce, we can understand why they may not want to be quick to enter into a marriage relationship and expose themselves to that same level of pain. And so the numbers of people that are delaying marriage or who are never getting married is growing. But I think that's a worrisome sign for our future. But what we see with all of that is the ongoing price that sin requires and the sin of divorce brings upon our situation. But some people may be single by fear. Secondly, some may be single by birth. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Now technically, a eunuch is a man who has been castrated or has had his anatomy unaltered where he's no longer capable of what is expected of a man in a marriage relationship. Jesus refers to this as one who has been born this way with a birth defect or a genetic defect. They just have lack of ability, incapable of performing the functions that are required in marriage. And in the Old Testament, that meant they could not be married. It was just simply a requirement that in the one flesh union that would imply the most intimate of unions. And in the Old Testament, to be a eunuch meant you were disqualified from being married, you were disqualified from being in the temple, you were disqualified from being in the priesthood because it was a sign of something that was not holy and pure. Now, in Christ, all that is lost in Adam is redeemed. And in the New Testament, there is hope for the eunuch. It starts back in Isaiah 56, where there is a promise of the one who is a eunuch that if he is faithful to the Lord and walking in his ways, he will have an inheritance that is far richer than having sons and daughters. And think of what Jesus is doing in the church. As he draws us into the church and as he forms us to be this spiritual temple over which he is the head and in which he is the Lord, we are told that all of us then are priests 
in his kingdom service. And so in the majesty of God, in the wonder of the gospel, there is hope even for those that, physically speaking, in this life, don't have a hope of being a human parent. But in Christ, they can have a hope of having an inheritance that far surpasses even that. Thirdly, where there are those who are single just by the circumstances of life. Now, directly in verse 13, it says there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Now, there's a few ways that this could happen. First, in ancient times, there was a category of men that had this title who were made so by other men so that they could serve in kingdom, serve in some type of government capacity. In pagan cultures, kings would often have more than one wife called a harem. They would have groups of wives. And the last thing the king wants is an active man that is keeping watch over his harem. And so they would render their servants eunuchs so that they would not be distracted, if you will, in their helping the king take care of the harem. Now, let's, let's be real here. This is horrifying. This is a horrifying practice. And it's never condoned in scripture this was only done among pagans it was a completely pagan practice so when the bible speaks of things that go on it is not always in the context of the bible endorsing what goes on and that's certainly the case here the jewish people had a rich theology of marriage of family of procreation of manhood of womanhood but some because of the pagan practices were rendered eunuchs for their subservience in kings and kingdoms Another way that this perhaps could happen would be by some type of accident, a military injury, torture, or whatever. But by the circumstances of life, some were rendered incapable of entering into a marriage relationship. And the fourth way would be by calling, or in, by God's placing his hand on their lives for a special favor for a special time. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So there are those then who do not enter into the covenant of marriage because they feel the calling of God upon their lives and their commitment to the kingdom of heaven. It's not because of any loss of ability, loss of function, or even perhaps loss of desire to be married. But it's just in the providence of God as they have placed those desires under his lordship, he has given them a calling that allows them to focus on kingdom of heaven work for the glory of God. Now, there is a sense where all of us have this type of calling at some time in our lives. Every one of us has that calling until we get married. There is simply no allowance in the scriptures anywhere for sexual expression before marriage or outside of marriage. It is all condemned and subject to the fires of hell if there is not repentance. Let's just state it the way it is. Some are called to a, a temporary life, if you will, of celibacy because of situations of life, a spouse perhaps that is deployed overseas for some time, or someone who is separated in another city because of employment, perhaps because of a long illness, or because of the need to take care of family members. But Jesus is talking here about those that have made themselves eunuchs, and he's not talking in a literal sense. Unfortunately, some in church history, perhaps because of their desire to be literalist and studying the scriptures, went so far as to actually castrate themselves, only to find out later that Jesus was talking about something far more important, what goes on in the depths of one's heart, one's heart relationship and attitude to the Lord. So it's better perhaps to render this translation here, those 
who decide not to be married or who have not been married under the providence of God. And so this calling, and in some circumstances this gifting, is given to all. But it's not given to all in the sense of a lifetime requirement. Those that have received this calling recognize it, and they can live in it, and they can subdue their, their passions and, authority and desires under the authority of Christ. Most men and women are called to marriage, the great majority. But some are not. John the Baptist, Paul the Apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ, never married, lived lives of complete celibacy as a way of life for the good of the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul could not have accomplished all that he did in his over three decades of ministry if he had been married and had a family to take care of, where he was suffering prison and attacks and difficulty in his long travels. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 7, he gives thanks to God for the gift that he has received. In the history of the church, it's often the case that the frontiers of global missions have been pushed by those who were single, who dedicated themselves to the service of God for all their lives in the translation of scriptures, in the building of schools, in the building of hospitals. We were able to push the frontiers because they didn't have the same responsibilities as those who were married, so they could take more risks. Now, that's not universally true. The Lord has used people of all kinds to push forward the frontiers of missions throughout life, but some of them have been heroes of the faith because they dedicated their lives to this unique focus on the kingdom of heaven. And for them, and for those who have received it then, celibacy is not to be seen as a curse, but as a gift. I would say it is a gift that God gives to all at some point, to many at any given time, and to some all of the time. So what is our response to be? Are we to look with suspicion at a single man or a single woman with suspicion? Is there something wrong? Or are we to turn it around and say, perhaps the Lord is, is gifting and guiding them into a type of lifestyle right now for the service of Christ, for the fulfillment of what they are doing within their family and church? You see, we have to fight against temptations in our culture. On the one hand, and we see it all the time, there is a tendency to just mock the whole idea of marriage. <laughs> Who wants the old ball and chain? And we might even be tempted to laugh at that. But what are we actually doing? We're laughing at a good gift of God. Do we really want to be those that are on that part? So they just go off and live as if they're married or do everything that married people do, but they don't get married. Do we want to perpetuate that? No. On the other hand, then people say, well, you know, I just want to live the single life. Do what I want. You see this, uh, unfortunately, in social media today. People boasting about their single lives and all the things that they can do because they don't have the responsibilities of marriage and family. And it just oozes with selfishness and self-focus. But on the other hand, if we've been blessed to be called to be married and we have a good family, we do not want to be looking down on those who don't. We need to see them as our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and walk side by side with them and embrace and enfold them in the church and welcome them and recognize them. Because the Bible does not elevate one way of life over another. It doesn't elevate the celibate lifestyle. It doesn't elevate the married lifestyle. It elevates Christ. 
and we are to elevate and exalt Christ, whatever our calling is, whatever our station is in life, because ultimately then, our satisfaction needs to be found in him. That is where our contentment is, that is where the fullness of our humanity is experienced, and Christ, who was the most truly human person to ever walk the earth, never got married, yet was the fullness of humanity. And we find our fullness and our meaning in him. So, this is a tough passage. These are not the things we're used to talking about when we come to church on Sunday morning. But because we are surrendered to the word of God, we go through each passage and we look at it and we examine it and we say, well, God, all of the word of God to all the people of God for all the glory of God and all the good of his plan. So what is just some practical counsel that we can take this morning? Because all of us find ourselves in these different situations and all of us know people that are in different situations than the ones we are in. How can we apply these difficult yet straightforward teachings that Jesus has given from verse 1 down to verse 12? Well, if you're married, stay married. Do whatever you have to do to get the help, to get the support, to get the education, so that you will stay married and grow in your marriage. You can experience all that God wants for you in Christ in your marriage. Promote God's high view of marriage. If you're divorced and you're single and it was for unbiblical reasons, well, the sin of divorce can be dealt with. God always can deal with sin, but he doesn't always promise to deal with the consequences. And it might be that you need to consider the possibility that remarriage is not for you. Now, I'm not going to give that as an absolute because I don't think God does. But at least it's implied here that it is a real possibility. We can't play fast and loose with the grace of God. So in other words, to remarry is not an automatic right, unless there's deep faith and repentance and working through the issue. If you're divorced but have remarried, you might have to have some tough conversations as far as making sure that if it's possible, you rebuild relationships that were broken before. Now, I'm not saying get divorced again. We're not going to compound the sin of divorce with another divorce. You're going to stay married. You're going to work at getting better at your marriage. You're going to build into each other. You're going to model God's plan for marriage. You're not going to compound the error. But you need to do what you can to make sure that you now promote a higher view of marriage. If you're single, stay with us. Love the church. Love God. You have so much to offer. Your gifts and talents and abilities. We need you. And you need the church as we grow as a family of God. But for all of us, we need to remember there are not first and second class Christians in the church. We've all been broken by sin. We've all been sinned against in many ways. We have all sinned in many ways. We're all broken in many ways. We all need to grow and experience the grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion of Christ. But we don't sweep sin under the rug. We confront sin and deal with it with the gospel truth. So we need to embrace those who have suffered and are now with us in Christ. We need to embrace and fold Christians who have failed and walk beside them and train them so they can do better and can grow into greater maturity. We need to embrace and unfold those who are not married and show them that they're part of the family of God. 
But in each and every case, we are to find our ultimate contentment in Christ. We might be tempted to say, and we sing, well, all I have is Christ. (laughs) But don't get that meaning wrong. All you have is Christ? The one who is the God-man, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one through whom all things were created, the way, the truth, and the life, the living God, the one before you will, you will stand as your judge. All you have is Christ? You have Christ. And ultimately in Christ you find your fulfillment, your satisfaction, your meaning, your identity, your purpose, your holiness, your sanctification, your wisdom, and your truth. And that is what each one of us needs in whatever circumstance or situation we find ourselves in. Jesus is not afraid to deal with the difficult aspects of human life, of church life, of community life. He left the glories of heaven to come and live in our mess. But he didn't want to leave us in it. He came to offer a way of salvation and a way out. So in our first major point of marriage and singleness, we do well to listen to his high view of marriage, and to live accordingly. Secondly, we see children and the kingdom. Children and the kingdom. Verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. So here we have parents, maybe uncles, we're not sure. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about his affection for children. They heard about his love. They bring their children to him. And something special is happening. They want to have Jesus bless them and lay his hands on them. And so Jesus models for us that children are not a burden. Everywhere we look when we look at the life of Jesus, he loves children. They're drawn to him. He's surrounded by them. They are not threatened by him. He uses children as as examples of what faith looks like. Children who show this humble dependency on their parents that is a model for how we are to be before a heavenly father children are not a burden but he knows they're a challenge we know they're a challenge we know a small child is someone who can wash his hands without getting the soap wet (laughs) and we love children even when they're not being a lump in our throat at times they're a pain in the neck But the people bring their children to Jesus. And the disciples rebuke them. They're irked by this interruption to the ministry of the master. Now remember, in the ancient times, children did not have high value and status in themselves. They were considered low and dependent, and they're completely reliant upon their family, their parents for everything in their lives, their purpose, their identity, their name. And this sudden appearance of children around Jesus, at least for some of the apostles, would would be an interruption of the real ministry. After all, there's adults who need teaching and preaching and healing. And Jesus, you have a world to save. And why are these children coming here and getting in the way of the ministry? Even as I present it that way, we we look at them and we say, how could you do that? And then we just read the news in our own culture where children are seen as a burden they're a bother they're a nuisance we have adults only tours and restaurants that won't allow children to be in there 
We see him as a burden, not a blessing, a political prop instead of people created in the image of God. They're seen as little people who get in the way of our big dreams of a career and a social life and personal success. Do we really treat children any better or are we tempted to push them away? And even in the church, we need to be careful to not see children as an interruption to the real ministry that's going on in the church. So a couple things here. One, I'm so glad as Pastor Brian said that there's a lot of children with us. I don't mind hearing them scream and, scream and squirrel and make noise. Okay? But I will ask this as parents of young children. You're not alone here, so perhaps at times it might be a good idea just to take the child out for a moment and use the cry room in the back or use the foyer. Not demanding it, just considering the needs of all of us here. But for us as well, let's show support for these young parents. When the child starts to squeal, don't have your first reaction to get upset and look. How about, Lord, bless that child. Give wisdom to the parents. Spirit, would you continue to be in control of all that's happening here? And that we use it as a redemptive teaching response to take care of one another, to build up our community and our community in Christ. Children are never a burden. They're always seen as a blessing in the scriptures. So let the children come. Verse 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And as verses like this, when I first had the privilege of coming here and serving among you as the senior pastor, and I talked with the elders, and I said, let's get the children back into the worship services, at least for the first half of the service. Let them come. Let our children experience what it is to be part of a worshiping family. Let them see adults praying and singing and greeting one another. Let them hear the reading of the word of God. Let them be greeting those that are several generations older than them. And know that this is family life. This is how we do family life together. We're a spiritual family. Yeah, a little squealing and squirming might go on. But we're going to learn from children as well the joy that they bring, the hope and love that they bring, the insights that they bring, the blessings that they are to the body of Christ. And we need to be careful because in recent generations, at least in the Western world, there's been the temptation to segregate children off. So as soon as they come into the building, off we bring them to children's church and children's Bible studies and they, they stay by themselves the whole morning or the nursery, and then they get a little older, and then they stay in, the, in their little Sunday school class, and they get a little older, they're in, they keep them in the youth group, and then they get a little older, and we put them in a college group, and they get a little older, we put them in young adults group, and all along the way, we've not actually shown them what it is to be part of the community. And then we wonder why, when they graduate from college with their career and their job, they don't get involved in a local church. Well, we've trained them not to. So we need to be careful. Let's let the children be a part and parcel of what we're doing as part of our family. Show them what the community of faith looks like. Let's welcome them. Let's surround our parents and grandparents as they raise their children. They're important to Jesus. They should be important to us. For Jesus says often in children we see childlike faith and the kingdom. Verse 14 again. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Once again, Jesus shows the importance and necessity of humility and trust, which are the characteristics of a true believer. 
He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That if we do not become like a child, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Completely dependent on our Father and his grace and his mercy and his goodness and what he has done in Christ for life and forgiveness and all that we need. Children in their humble status can teach us a lot about what it means to trust, what it means to grow, what it means to understand. And the gospel then, as we model it for our children and as we live it out in the church, we model that the church is for the weak and the downtrodden and the rejected and the outcast and the unimportant and the vulnerable. And I think this is the attitude that Jesus was getting to when he began the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No pretense. No claim that somehow they're worthy of anything other than the wrath of God. But that God in Christ had mercy upon them and gave them eternal life. Children who trust their parents, they, they show us what it is that we should trust in our God. And so because they are these examples then of faith and they are important to Jesus, he draws them to bless the children. Verse 15, and he laid his hands on them and went away. He loved them, he touched them, he blessed them, he brought them into his arms. He took the time to stop and give a blessing before going on his way. And if they're important to Jesus, children should be important to us. Because we know that ultimately to protect children is to protect ourselves. It's to protect our future, it's to protect the integrity and strength of the church, that it would be ongoing. If you paid attention to what Brother Mark was reading in Psalm 78, that we would pass these things on from one generation to the next so that the next generation would what? Put their hope in God. And that's the golden of the church, that we train our children and our grandchildren that they would put their hope in God. And that's a far more important legacy than we can leave with anything in a material manner. And we need to protect our children, invest ourselves in children, underscore the importance that they are to God and to us. And so they brought their children to Jesus and he blessed them. Now, we don't have a clear command here, but I think we have a biblical picture of child dedication. These parents are bringing their children to Christ. And in our church, we like to practice child dedication, baby dedication. We recognize that each boy and each girl that comes into the world is a blessing from Almighty God. And as that blessing, we want to present the blessing back to God and say, as you will, use this child for your glory and help these parents to raise this child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. If you have children and you've never taken that step to present them and dedicate them to the Lord, I don't care how old they are. Come and see me. Let's talk together about the wonder of children and how God desires to bless the family and let's talk about what it is to have child dedication and then let's celebrate and have this stage full of children that are being presented to the Lord as we surround parents and grandparents and ask the Lord's blessing and favor to be upon them. Let's model for the watching world how important the family is, marriage and parents and children. But I finish with a thought that perhaps is a bit unusual because it doesn't seem like it's direct, but I think you'll see where I'm going with this. Look at the example that Jesus gives us here. Think of where he is at in his ministry. 
He has just spent a bunch of time training his disciples. He's brought them to Caesarea Philippi with this great pronouncement of faith. He's now brought them back to Galilee and Capernaum for a time of preparation. They've now left Capernaum where they're going to go along the east side of the Jordan River. They're going to cross back over into Judea and go on to Jerusalem. And as he's on this trip, he's interrupted by these parents bringing their children to him and notice that Jesus is never in a hurry in his ministry. That doesn't mean he was not intentional. That doesn't mean he was not, that, it just means he wasn't controlled by the whims of the people. It means he modeled walking with the Father under the power of the Spirit to accomplish the praises and purposes of God, and he valued people as he did so. He could have said, get away from me. I got something more important to do. I've got the redemption of the world. I've got to go and accomplish. Bring the kids to me later. He didn't do that. He stopped took the children into his arms, prayed over them, loved them, and continued on his way. He didn't see this as an interruption. This was part of his ministry. This is part of the providence of God guiding him step by step in his ministry. And as I'm contemplating this thought even in my own life this week, because I like to have my schedule and I like to have my routine and I need to be in this place at this time and I need to do this now and I need to have these things accomplished by a certain date, how open am I to God interrupting my ministry? Now think of how arrogant that question is. My ministry, when all that I am belongs to him. All that I have in my life belongs to him. And if he truly is the providential one who governs all things for the good of his, his purposes, then he can interrupt my life because he wants to use me as an instrument of blessing to someone else. Do we understand that? Are we willing to follow the example of Jesus and recognize that all that we have is his, that he can direct and use as he desires, including those holy interruptions because he's got things he wants to do in and through us. Something to think about as we consider moving forward in our passage in Matthew 19 as we come to an end today. Next week, Jesus is going to have another challenging message for us as he moves from marriage and family and singleness and children we're going to encounter a rich young man who Jesus is going to force to reveal where his true treasure lies. And again, it's going to be one of those heart checks that we're going to go through as our Lord just continues to want to draw us and pull us that we'll become more like him because our goal and desire is to be more like Jesus. But he knows just the right questions to ask to show us our continuous need of him. But until we get to that point next week, what are some application points we can take away from today? Well, because marriage is so important to God, we commit to teaching, loving, and living out his good plan for marriage. Marriage not only is not old-fashioned, marriage is the way to go because it's God's way, and it's re it results in human flourishing and the accomplishment of God's will. Because repentance and forgiveness are at the heart of the gospel, we need to live it out in our personal and family relationships. It's not by accident that this passage comes on the, the heels of that long passage on how to forgive one another and how many times, how much more than how to forgive and reconcile in the heart of marriage. Thirdly, whatever our calling in life, whether single or married, we commit to holy and fruitful lives for his glory. I use this illustration with the grandparents at a chapel a week or so ago and I said in mathematics 
we all know the difference between the dot and the line. And in mathematics, the line is eternal. It goes off into both directions in an unending manner. The dot is simply one point on the line. We live in a dot of such a small duration, but we're to live for the line. And the way we live for the line is to walk according to God's ways and his purposes and live them out joyfully and faithfully and truthfully so that our lives become holy and fruitful for his glory. Live for the line, not just for the dot. And lastly, because the Lord values children, we gladly include them in our church life and commit to raising them in the ways of the Lord. And may we always see children as, as a blessing that the Lord is bringing to us. And so let's continue to surround our Sunday school teachers and our VBS teachers and parents and grandparents as they raise and teach their children. And let's show what a godly family is to a watching world. Let us pray. Father, we stand amazed that your word speaks to us in such direct and even graphic terms. But I thank you, Father, that you do because you love us. And so, Father, may we have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are filled with your strength and your hope so that we will live out these wonderful kingdom purposes that you've given. And Father, I pray that as we look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he loved and how he lived, that you would fill us anew with the power of your Holy Spirit and the joy of your presence, that we would gladly and willingly obey you and continue to deal with sin in our hearts and in our lives and root them out and confess them and cast them away. And so we thank you, Father. Keep coming after us, we pray, by your spirit. Father, don't ever stop pursuing us to draw us closer into your presence that we might become more like our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.